You're listening to audio from Park Church. More info and resources are online at parkchurch.org. Take care. The scripture reading for today is from Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 through 21. Again, that's Matthew 17, verses 14 through 21. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, If you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. This is the word of the Lord. Appreciate that, Ben. Good morning. Hope you're doing well. My name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors here at Park Church. I want to say again, before we dive into this passage, uh, just thanks to the student ministry. Thanks to Luke. Uh, I think uh, just for us as a people, uh, watching kind of the students at Park and so many of the volunteers that helped, I just live on mission should be a challenge to all of us to love and to serve this community, this city, and all the ways that God's called us to. Wherever he's called you even now, uh, we're called to be the hands and feet of Jesus, both in the ways we show compassion, kindness, love, serve, but also in the ways we proclaim the good news of the gospel. And so uh, just grateful for the ways that they've been an example to all of us. Uh, The passage this morning uh, is another interesting one. Uh, Jesus says some things that you just don't expect him to say and uh, behaves in ways that you don't always expect him to behave. And every time I come across passages like that when I'm reading through the Bible, uh, it's kind of intriguing to me because uh, I'm like, all right, what's going on? Because on the, on the face of it, something is stretching me outside of kind of my box or my preconception of what I think Jesus should be like or should say or should do in different scenarios. And so uh, I think what we see in Jesus uh, as in some ways challenging as his response is in this particular situation is a really beautiful invitation for us uh, to grow as a people, understand his desire to wield his power in and through his people. As we learn to trust not in ourselves, uh, not, not in our own devices, our own strategies, our own wisdom, but to trust in him. So I think even today, we all show up in this space today, and uh, you have things in your life that you want to see change. You have things in your family or in your friend group that you want to see God do. There are things in this city and around this world that feel so dark and so hopeless and so broken, and you want to see those look different. You want to see a different kind of future. You want to see restoration and transformation happen in the world. And God's called us to participate in it. And yet there are times where we feel as human beings really powerless, really powerless. And that's what this passage is about this morning. And so we're going to pray that God would help us understand more of the way that he's called us to understand and to be agents of his power in this world. And, uh, and we need the Holy Spirit's help for that. So would you join me as we pray to him? Father, we need you today. We need your grace. Uh, We need your wisdom. We need your Holy Spirit to come right now 
and to give us hope. There are people in this room that don't know you, that haven't experienced your power to bring forgiveness and transformation into their own life, and I pray your power would be at work right now in them. Uh, There are areas in our life where there are illnesses and struggles and addictions and fears and areas of brokenness that we've wanted to see you work in and change for a long time, and we feel so powerless, so unable to affect the kind of change that we long for. We pray your power would be at work even today. But also there are areas where we've lost heart because we've prayed for things, we've asked you to do things, we've wanted to see change for a long time, and things haven't changed. And so I imagine for many in the room, there's disillusionment at times or hopelessness or, or confusion. And so would you remind us and clarify for us what it means to be a people who trust in you, uh, who trust in your power, but also trust in your wisdom, trust in your grace, and trust in your purposes. And so lead us this morning uh, into a deeper understanding of, of your grace, your love, your power at work through Jesus in this world. And would you help us to be those who participate in your mission in this world? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I want to talk for a minute about storylines. I I was thinking a lot about storylines this past week for a couple of different reasons. One of them is because of the final four, which I got to talk about. Uh, Just have to. I'm sorry. I'm a human, and this particular human had a great night last night uh, (laughs) watching the Jayhawks dominate. Uh, Dominate. And and, uh, it was interesting throughout the week and then kind of in the subsequent kind of time, even since last night, all the different storylines. And so uh, storylines, by what I, what I mean by storylines is there's an event that happens, in this case, the Final Four. And, uh, and in that event, there are storylines that lead up to it. If you were a kind of sports writer and you were a journalist and you were writing a column kind of leading up to the Final Four, or you were having to write a column reflecting on the Final Four, you would have to make decisions. Uh, what are you going to write about? What are you going to write about? For example, in this one, are you going to write about this being kind of a blue blood final four, right? Which, you know, is debatable. Is Villanova a blue blood? I don't know. After last night, doesn't seem like it. Uh, doesn't seem like it, but that's my opinion. Uh, but are you going to write about the blue blood final four, all these kind of basketball royalty programs? Are you going to write about Coach K's last dance and this incredible run? Are you going to write about the tobacco road rivalry between Duke and UNC and that they've played all of these games and had this long tension and this long rivalry, but they've never faced each other in the NCAA tournament? Are you going to write about that? Are you going to write about how this year might be KU's chance to avenge the fact that they were the best team in the country in 2020, but then there was that pandemic, remember? And... Uh, canceled the tournament. I'm not bitter about that. Uh, not bitter about that. Are you going to write about this as their chance to avenge that season? What, what are you going to write about? And it's going to depend on your perspective. It's going to depend on what you're trying to communicate. And once you make that decision, what you're going to try and communicate, you're going to make decisions about what details to include, what kind of like facts you're going to kind of draw attention to, who you're going to quote, what interviews you're going to refer to, are you going to paraphrase anything, summarize anything? You're making all these decisions about what storyline you're going to take and how you're going to present that story. If you're not a basketball person, I get it. I get it. So let's take, for example, another event from this past week, the Academy Awards. Uh, Are there any storylines from the Academy Awards that, like, rise to your attention, you know? Um, So let's say you were going to write specifically about this whole Will Smith, Chris Rock incident. If you're going to write about it, what are you going to write about? You're going to write from the angle of kind of talking about what Will Smith did, this kind of act of public violence. You're going to write about what Chris Rock said. 
and kind of the role of comedy and what comedy should what should and shouldn't be out of bounds in comedy? Are you going to write about kind of the aftermath and how the, the kind of crowd responded? Are you going to write about kind of like the things that happened to the people that went up and talked to different people in different moments? What are you going to write about? Right? There's an event and then there's a kind of recording of that event. And when you record, put a written record of that event down, you're making all sorts of decisions about what angle you're going to take, what storyline you're going to follow. And that's the difference between what we call history and historiography. History is sort of the, the totality of events that have happened. History is like what happened, what actually happened. But that's a thing that happened, and it's like a, a, there's a fullness to history that as you begin to write that down and you begin to record that history, you're now making a ton of decisions. You're making decisions about what angle to take about this story. Whose perspective are you going to tell this story from? As you tell that story, what details are you going to include? What do you want to highlight? What do you want to draw attention to? Who are you going to quote? What do you, kind of, when you quote people, are you going to kind of focus on these phrases? Are you going to kind of do the whole quote or kind of a summary or excerpts? How long are you going to tell the story? And all of that is kind of governed by the why. What's your purpose in communicating? So when we read the Bible, one of, we're, one of the things we're doing is we're reading kind of historiography. We're doing this work to try to understand these biblical writers. There are events that happened, and these biblical writers are recording those events and passing them down with different purposes. And so in healing stories in particular, which we're in the middle of another healing story, uh, there are all sorts of healing stories throughout the Bible. And the question we're asking is like, is the purpose of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in healing stories just to do another story of Jesus has the power to heal? Is that the purpose? Partly, but with each story, all of these kind of like stories, the way they're being told are drawing attention to different aspects of Jesus' authority, the nature of his kingdom, the role of his people, the kinds of people that Jesus heals, the kinds of things he has power over, what, what those kind of healings do to affect people's role and place in society. And so there are healing stories of people that have physical illness with uh, inability to walk or blindness or skin diseases. There are stories that kind of focus on his power over the kind of spiritual realm with exorcisms or he's casting out demons. There are stories that seem to focus on kind of different ethnic groups where he casts and heals kind of the, the child of a Roman centurion or the story we looked at a couple weeks ago where he heals the daughter of a Canaanite woman. In those stories, sometimes you're getting discourse or narrative or dialogue. And in that dialogue, you're kind of getting different questions that are being asked by different people. Sometimes it focuses on the questions of the disciples. Sometimes it focuses on the questions and the kind of interaction of the person that's coming for the healing. Sometimes it focuses on Jesus' teaching. And we're always reading these stories trying to understand what does this story contribute to the way we understand who Jesus is, what he's doing in the world, what it means to be his followers, and what our place is in this really epic and beautiful story. And so today we're in one of those passages, and it's drawing attention to an aspect of healing that I think we resonate with, uh, most of us. And it's kind of what is our role in God's kind of mission to bring his transformative power into the world? What's our role as followers of Jesus and God's mission to bring his restorative power into the world? Now what's interesting about this one is it's told through the lens not of a great success, but of a great failure. And something that I think most of us resonate with. There are things in this world that we want to see God do. And when we don't see him work in the ways that we want to see him work, we begin to ask this, why? Why? Why didn't you bring healing into this situation? Why didn't you bring change into that thing? Why did this relationship fall apart? Why did you heal this person but not this person? And why did this experience of transformation happen but I feel so stuck here? And why? 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 That's what this question, this passage 
is aiming at. The way Matthew frames this passage is aiming at the disciples' lack of power, their inability to bring healing into a particular situation, and their question, why? Why were we unable to see the power of God at play in this scenario? That's what we're asking. I want you to look with me in the passage. We're in Matthew. We're going to be in chapter 17, starting in verse 14. Or, uh, yeah, starting in verse 14. And we'll just kind of pick up. Uh, I'll give a little more context as we work through the passage, draw attention to some things, and then unpack, I think, some of the relevant questions that we all face as we wrestle through these kinds of questions in our own life and journey. Matthew 17, verse 14. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him. I want to pause. Who's they? They, in this particular instance, in the context, is Peter, James, John, and Jesus. If you remember, we had just covered the story where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to what we call the Mountain of Transfiguration. Jesus is transformed before them where they finally see that truly this is the Son of God. Truly this is the Christ, the Messiah, the King we've been waiting for. And this king is the one that we believe is bringing restoration to the whole world. It's going to redeem, restore the whole world. Everything that's been broken by human sin and rebellion is going to be restored. And they've learned that this particular king is coming to bring restoration in a way that is not what they expected. It's going to come through the form of a sacrificial death on the cross and his subsequent resurrection. And so Peter, James, and John have had this experience with Jesus. They've been baffled. They're in awe. They're kind of overwhelmed. They're beginning to understand a little bit more. And they come down the mountain. They finally make their way back to a crowd of people. In every gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke in particular, the synoptic gospels, they kind of the story of the transfiguration is immediately before this particular story of this man coming up to Jesus, asking him to heal his son. So that's what happens. They make their way down, and there's a big crowd of people. So what, what's happening in the crowd of people? Here's what it says. And the man went up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he's an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. Let's get into the kind of like the scene. And she's like, pay attention to the scene, what's happening. If you think about the backstory of what's been going on, there's a man here uh, who has a son who's suffered terribly uh, from seizures of some kind. So the word that we get, even these ideas of epilepsy from, is the word that's used in the Greek. He's having some seizures of some kind. And these particular seizures are being manifested in different ways, but at times, and according to the father, often, They're kind of happening in a way that he's falling into fires and into water. doesn't say, and once this happened, for some reason, often into water, often into fires. And so you just imagine the experience for this family. Some of you have faced incredible pain in your own life, in the life of family members and loved ones, or you've watched loved ones suffer, or you've suffered a lot. Maybe you've struggled with things like epilepsy or seizures or other medical conditions that make life really complicated. And as you feel that reality, this father has been watching his son suffer. Imagine him having to rescue his son out of water. Uh, Imagine him having to pull his son out of the fire and bandage up burn wounds. Often. And he's desperate. His son, whom he loves, is suffering terribly. Terribly. And I imagine, like any parent would, again, like we talked about with the Canaanite woman, that he's tried everything he knows to help, 
to, to take him to different places, anything he can to bring healing to his son. And he hasn't been able to bring healing in any way. And so he hears that there's a healer. He hears some news about Jesus and the kind of mission that he's had, that he's gone in all these towns and villages and so many people have been healed. And the rumors and the kind of news reports are spreading like wildfire across the whole region. And so finally he kind of decides he's going to make his way and find out where Jesus is. And he finds a crowd and that crowd is gathered around, but Jesus isn't there. But his disciples are there. And, uh, and there's stories even among the crowd that these disciples have also participated in these healings. If you read in chapter 10 of Matthew, if you remember back, you know, four or five years ago, whenever we were there, I don't know how long ago it was, uh, we were in Matthew 10 and Jesus sent out the 12 and they went out into all these towns and villages in pairs and they were healing diseases and they were casting out demons and they were participating in Jesus' authority to bring these kind of evidences of the power of his kingdom, the restorative power of his kingdom to bear in different communities and towns around the region. And so finally this man comes up to the disciples and he brings them to the disciples. We don't have any details on what they tried, what they said, what they did. All we know is that they did not have the power. It says they were unable to heal him. The word unable there in the Greek is this word lacking power. They didn't have power. It was a powerless experience. Whatever's happening, they're saying things, doing things, trying things. Nothing is being effective. They were powerless. And that powerlessness is the sort of theme. It's the same basic phrase is repeated three times in this passage. Once there in verse 16, it shows again in verse 19. Uh, why could we not? Why do we not have the power to cast it out? And it shows up again in the last verse, verse 20, when it says, nothing will be impossible for you. The word is nothing. You will not lack the power to do anything. To do anything. Same word. They're lacking power. And we resonate with that. We resonate with that. There are stories all around this room of people that we have cared for and loved, active stories. There are stories of people that I've loved that have passed away, that were praying and seeking. It just felt like there's no power here. And, and we ask that question, why? 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 It's hard. The desperation of this man is met by Jesus who's come down the mountain. And the way Jesus responds in this passage is not the way we want him to respond. It's just not. It's not. Look at what Jesus says. He says, I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? And he sounds exasperated. He sounds frustrated. You know, like, is this like, is he just kind of like having a bad day, overwhelmed? What's going on in this passage? Uh, what's going on? I feel like, you know, when we get to a place like Matthew eleven twenty-eight, 28, like, Jesus is like, for I am gentle and lowly at heart. Like I've preached so many times about God's gentleness and the gentleness of Jesus, his humility, his love, his compassion. He's not disappointed with you. He's not fed up with you. He's not frustrated. He's not exacerbated. He, he's so patient. He's so kind. And he's so unconditionally loving in our, his posture towards us and come to him because he's so gentle and so patient and so kind. And that's true, but it's not the whole story. It's not the whole story. The, the Jesus who has this kind of characteristic kindness and compassion and gentleness and humility can also be really frustrated. You read throughout the Old Testament over and over and over, God experiences and expresses indignation 
righteous anger towards his people again and again and again, often. And this Jesus is the exact image of God. He is quite certainly gracious and merciful, abounding in compassion, steadfast love, faithfulness, patience. It's who he is. But he's also the exact image of a God who can be and express anger and frustration at ongoing rebellion and unbelief. And in this passage, he is. And so there is very much a sense in this passage where he is exasperated. Who is he exasperated at? It's not specific, but pretty much all commentators and kind of like uh, exegetes that are looking at this passage would say, it seems pretty clear it's the whole generation. It's a wide swath thing. It's not like I'm so exasperated with you and with you because of how frustrating your wanderings have been and how, how I've watched you the past few nights and I'm just so annoyed with you. It's not what it is, but there's a kind of generation-wide sense of ongoing unbelief and a twisting of the kingdom of God, a twisting of God's purposes, and a kind of rebellion or rejection of the reign of God, a rejection of faithfulness to God, to try to kind of build their own life and their own society apart from God himself. And so Jesus calls them a perverse and twisted generation. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Now, it's interesting to me the phrases that Jesus uses here and the ones that Matthew chooses as he's recording the story to highlight. Matthew, again, is, re- is recording this particular story in the context of a broader story where Moses is all over the context. We looked at this last week, all of his experience of Jesus on this mountain of transfiguration where the clouds are kind of breaking over him, this voice from heaven speaking to Jesus, declaring him to be his beloved son with whom he is pleased, listen to him. We talked about this is like a whole kind of repeating of this story of Moses this kind of iconic Old Testament figure who's appearing before God on Mount Sinai. God speaks to him. Moses' face is shining like the sun. He goes back down to the people. And what are the people doing when he goes back down the mountain? Do you remember? There's a a golden what? A golden calf. Uh, The people had just been redeemed with God's power, God's strong, mighty arm, with 10 miraculous acts of power to redeem the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, to love them, to rescue them from this inescapable burden that was crushing them, this bondage that they couldn't escape. No matter how hard they tried, no matter how kind of much they wanted it, they could not free themselves from slavery. So they cried out to God. God heard their cry. He sent Moses to come and to be the kind of agent through which these incredible powerful acts are displayed. After 10 powerful uh, miracles and expressions of God's kind of unlimited power to redeem his people. They are freed from bondage through the blood of a sacrificial lamb, and they go up to this Red Sea. At the Red Sea, they're stuck between the Red Sea and the kind of pursuing Egyptian army, and they have no ability. They can't fight the army. They have no weapons. They have no strength, and there's a sea, and they're stuck, and Jesus says, be still. The Lord says, be still. I will fight for you. You don't need to be smart. You don't need to have it all together. You don't need to be stronger. You don't need to figure it out. You don't need to be the most strategic people. Just be still. Be silent. Watch me work. And they trusted him. And Moses extends his staff over the Red Sea and the waters part, and they pass through the Red Sea. The Egyptian army pursues them. The waters collapse over the Egyptian army, and they are delivered. All of the Old Testament story is going to look back to that moment as the kind of defining moment of God rescuing his people. In fact, all that we think about Jesus rescuing us from bondage to sin is often kind of 
cast and discussed through the lens of deliverance from slavery for that very reason. This inability to free ourselves from these things that plague us and crush us and the power of God and God alone to liberate us, deliver us, cleanse us through the blood of a lamb and through the waters of baptism into this new experience of life in his presence. And that people that experience that incredible power walk out into the wilderness and God begins to instruct Moses about what life in his kingdom is supposed to look like. And as Moses comes down the mountain, they're already done with God. They're already like, man, this has been kind of tough. Who do we think really delivered us? Let's make a calf and let's build it. This Israel is who delivered you from bondage. And they had already turned aside from that. And Moses is so exasperated. So frustrated, he breaks the tablets, he has to go back up, it's this whole experience. And it's the sort of the beginning of a long story, 40 years, of them continuing to turn away from God. After all that they had experienced, after all that they had seen, after all the signs and the wonders, and it happens again and again, God provides for them miraculously in the wilderness, and then they turn away from him and grumble and complain. God protects them from kind of pursuing armies in the middle of the wilderness, and then they turn back and want to go back to Egypt over and over and over again. And so then there's two places, really more than that, in the first five books of the Bible we call the Torah, where God expresses his frustration, his anger, at the faithlessness and perverse kind of like life of his people. After all that you've seen me do, the people of Israel again and again would say, I want to go back to Egypt. At least we had more meals back in Egypt. I want to go back to Egypt. At least we weren't being chased by all these other things. In fact, a lot of theologians will say the beginning of the Exodus story is about God getting the people out of Egypt. The rest of the story in the wilderness is about getting the Egypt out of the people. It's God rescuing us from this slavery to these kind of like ideologies and these ways of life that are set in opposition to God. And we feel forgiven and loved through the blood of a lamb. But the rest of our life, there are challenges and difficulties that God is using to refine our faith in him and to build in us a deep, resilient commitment. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. He is my everything and I'm going to follow him no matter what. We say that, and then the next week, it's like, except I really want to trust in my bank account. I, I really want to trust in my job. Or Jesus is the way, Jesus is the truth, Jesus is the life. There's no joy, there's no life apart from communion with him. And I say that, but then I compromise my integrity and my own life to kind of try to be who everybody wants me to be or be who this girl or this boy wants me to be in this situation so that I can kind of have a relationship that I deeply long for. Or Jesus is the way. He is the one who gives all that we need. He gives us security and life and meaning and purpose. But I really want to kind of like make everybody think I'm great by my possessions and my accumulation and my job. And I'm living not for the kingdom of God, not for the love of Jesus, not pursuing communion with him as the centerpiece of my sense of joy and identity and security. But I'm trying to find joy and identity and security in all the ways that everybody else in the world is. And through trials and difficulties, God continues to teach us what it means to trust fully in him. Now, our struggles and our failures to trust in him don't change the fact that he freed us by grace alone. It doesn't change the fact that our relationship with him in this covenant relationship to experience the love of God and to be secure in the love of God isn't contingent on how we're doing, but there are times where he's walking us through life where we're struggling to trust his power, his sufficiency, his authority, his goodness, his wisdom, his nearness, and we run away from him again and again, and again. And these two phrases here, when Jesus calls the generation faithless and perverse generation, comes from Exodus chapter 32, verse 5, 
where God is expressing that same attitude towards the people of Israel. And then this question, how long am I to bear with you? How long am I to bear with you comes from Numbers chapter 14, verse 11, where the people of Israel are kind of beginning to think about what life in the promised land will be. They send some spies into the promised land to scope it out, saying God has given you this land as your inheritance, and they see it's too much. The the armies that are there are too strong. The people are too big. There's no way. We don't have the power to go there. We don't have the power to kind of pursue that. We don't have the power to live into the promises of God. We don't have the power. And so they come back, and they're terrified, and everybody's scared, and they're like, let's go back to Egypt. And then Moses is crying out, like, how long am I to bear with this people? After all that you've seen God do, how long? And so in this particular passage, when Jesus expresses this, he's not so frustrated with his father. He's not so frustrated with this one particular person or this one particular thing. He's frustrated with the fact that they have seen his power, seen his grace, seen his kingdom, seen his reign, seen what he can do. And yet again and again, somehow in this particular story, it's an expression. When this man brought his son to to the disciples, they did not trust in his power. Something about it, they in their own strength were trying to do things apart from him, without him. And Jesus says, there's no power apart from me. Look what happens in the passage. It says, and Jesus said, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. He's not like frustrated and saying, I'm not going to heal him. He's going to heal him because he is compassionate. He is merciful. He is loving. Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him. And the boy was healed instantly. I'm going to pause there for a quick caveat. It's not the focus of the story, but just bears a kind of um, stating. Uh, In the kind of ancient conception of the world and throughout most peoples throughout history, they can kind of pull together both physical material realities and understand that behind them there are also often spiritual realities present. These aren't like a kind of dichotomy where it's either physical illness or it's spiritual. It doesn't mean every time there's physical illness there's a spiritual reality behind it. It doesn't mean that, but in this particular instance that this particular boy that is kind of experiencing these seizures and casting himself into fires often and casting himself into water often, like there's a spiritual force behind this that's demonic. And Jesus both casts out the demon and brings healing. And those two things don't have to feel separate to our Western mind. It's kind of post-enlightenment, Western thinking, where we think either we're going to trust the medical kind of abilities and resources, or we're going to trust in God. You can trust in God and go out to God, and you can also pursue medical kind of healing in different ways and trust that those are under the reign of God and the goodness of God. And you can pray for healing, and you can believe that there are times spiritual factors at play. We don't have to always be able to sort through it all. But believing that the world is complex, the, the world is like bursting with spiritual realities that are beyond our ability to conceive. And that might sound crazy, and I'd say if it sounds crazy, kind of the materialistic way of thinking that is so common in our society throughout most of the history of the world would seem really crazy. Most of the history of the world, people groups would see this world and say, it is so obvious that there are realities beyond our ability to see or perceive with our senses. It's so obvious. And we have kind of suppressed those realities, so we try to make things. Either there's an invisible God, and then there's kind of like physical material things, uh, or there's no God. The idea of saying there's physical material and spiritual life that surrounds everything we do uh, is the biblical worldview. And so I'm not going to spend more time on it today because it's not the focus. The focus is right here in verse 19. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, 
Why could we not cast it out? Why did we lack the power? We tried. We tried. Why? Help us understand why. And I think in these kinds of stories, when we get to all these healing stories, there are so many scenarios all around this room where the healing stories can be really beautiful, but at some point it it begs this question, why not this? Why not that? Why not infertility? Why not my child? Why not my marriage? Why not that relationship? Why not this sin struggle I feel so addicted and such bondage to? Why not that scenario in our city? Why not that issue of cultural brokenness? Why not that division that we see across our nation? Why not the war in Ukraine? Why is your power not at work in these places? Why do we lack power? I think that answer to that question is much more complex uh, than what Jesus will state here. So his answer here is not comprehensive, but it is to the point of their struggle right here and right now. Does that make sense? He's going to give an answer that is not a comprehensive answer that covers all the why don't we see power in these places, but it is an answer. It's an aspect of the answer. So here's what Jesus says. It's because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. It's a confusing passage because it feels like Jesus is saying the reason why you didn't have power is because of your, your little faith. But if you had faith as little as a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move from here to there. So it's like, so your little faith is a problem, but if you have faith the size of what was proverbially kind of like a representative of the smallest kind of thing, a mustard seed, if you had mustard seed small faith, you could say from this mountain, move from here to there, and it would move. And it's this kind of hyperbolic expression, say, very tiny faith, the littlest faith, can accomplish the most incredible impossible things. So the issue here isn't the measure of their faith. So what is it? What is it? Again, in the context, it has to do with this whole story of the propensity for even us as followers of Jesus to stop relying on him and begin relying on ourselves. It's not about the measure of our faith. It's about the object of our faith. The kind of power of God isn't unleashed through people who really believe more than other people. It is through those who put their faith and their hope in Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that every time your faith and your hope is in Jesus, he's going to heal or work in the ways that you want him to. But when your faith and your hope isn't in him, then his power is not going to be at work in you and in those scenarios. I want to read this from Sam Storms. Uh, Just a question he's wrestling with different reasons why God doesn't always heal the sick. Here's what he says. Faith is not a weapon by which we demand things from God or put him in subjection to us. Faith is an act of self-denial. Faith is a renunciation of one's ability to do anything and a confession that God can do everything. Faith derives its power not from the spiritual energy of the person who believes, but from the supernatural efficacy of the person who is believed, God. It is not faith's act, but its object that accounts for the miraculous. One of the deep issues with passages like this is it's often used to kind of get people, it's like, if you just believed enough, if you just believed a little more, if you just prayed a little harder, if you just did a little more, then God would have done it. And all that does kind of to the people of God is it leads this deep sense of self-doubt, shame, ultimately kind of like, um, kind of a, again, a sense of like 
brokenness where you just feel like, I, I can't do this, but then also frustration with God. Why wouldn't God heal there? Why wouldn't God do this? Is it just because I don't have enough? Like, where, how, how high do I have to get my faith meter before he finally moves? It's a really dangerous way of thinking. That if you just believed a little more, right? Think of like the Ted Lasso, like just believe in yourself. You know, hit the believe sign, right? Just believe. Went back to Kansas City one, one year when the Royals were on their kind of like run towards their last World Series and all around the city are all these billboards. Believe, believe, like the power of positive thinking, you know? Is it the power of positive thinking or is it how much positive thinking do you have about God? That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about a people who stopped trusting in Jesus' power and thought they could start doing things on their own. And when Jesus expresses his exasperation, it's not like, oh, you guys, like you're, you're wrestling. It's you're turning away from me and trying to do this on your own. I'm about to go and depart. And if I depart and you think you've got this, the whole thing's toast. How long am I to be with you? There are things I need my people to understand if you want to participate in my kingdom movement. There are things I need my people to embrace and that is not that you guys are awesome. It's not that we've got wisdom and power and efficacy and this ability to bring through our strategies and our church plans and all the things we can do on a Sunday and all of our missions initiatives and all of our kind of our active engagement in the city that we can change the world. We cannot. We lack the power. But Jesus has that power. He has the power to change. He has the power to take people that are dead in sin and reconcile them to himself by faith alone, through grace he has the power to bring reconciliation, not just to God, but to divided peoples by faith through grace alone. He has the power to bring transformation into your heart. That area where you feel like I struggle again and again and again, and I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying to pull myself up by my bootstraps to say, I can't, I, have, I don't have the power to change this. I don't have the power, but Jesus does. To think about your neighbors and their experience and the brokenness that they feel and they've, they had in their life and, and you want to help and you want to serve. There are ways to actively, tangibly help and serve, but you also must bow your knees in prayer to the God who has power. He has power to do more than we can imagine. He has a power to take a mountain and move it from here to there through a faith like the grain of a mustard seed. Are we crying out to him? In fact, in Mark's telling of the same story, it's a passage where Mark will say, these kinds only come out through prayer and fasting. Is that different? No, prayer is like faith in action. Prayer is like faith that's breathing. Prayer is this incredible expression of saying, I can't do anything about this, God, but you can, so I'm going to ask you to move. Fasting is a way of expressing our own kind of desperation and our need and our hunger for God, for God's power, for God's love, for God's presence, for God's nearness to be at work among us. And he's saying people that have faith in God would do things like pray and fast because he's the one that has the power. He's the one that has the power. Often we're like, God, will you do this thing? But like, I'm going to really kind of try to manage it by myself. It's like, how long are we going to keep doing that? Versus crying out, God, move in power. I love this phrase. When he says this phrase, little, little faith, it feels like in this moment, again, there's some exasperation, and I think there actually is in the tone of Jesus. But it's a phrase that's used throughout the Gospels. It's only used in this form right here, but throughout the Gospels, this idea of little faith 
develops. And these little faith ones, like Peter, James, and John, two of them in particular, Peter and John, after they see the power of God at work through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is poured out on them. In Acts chapter 3, there's a scene where Peter and John are walking towards the temple in this place near uh, this beautiful gate, and there's a man who's not been able to walk since his birth, and they see him, and the man looks at them, and he asks for some money, and they say, we have no gold, we have no silver, but we ha- what we have we can give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise, pick up your bed, and walk. And they lift him up, and the man is healed instantly. These people that had no power there all of a sudden had this incredible power. And all the crowds come, and they're astonished, and they're amazed at Peter and John. They're like, oh my gosh, these guys have incredible power. And here's what he says. Look at this, Acts chapter 3. I'm going to read it to you because it shows the development of their faith, which I think gives people like me, who I struggle with faithlessness and doubt, and I trust in my own strength all the time. I turn away from prayer all the time, watching their journey gives people like me hope. It says this, verse 11, Acts 3, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men and women of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as, th- as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? It's the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. He glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. They are quick to say, it was not us. We have no power. But Jesus has power. And it's through faith in him, through faith in his power, that he's brought transformation into the situation. Now, why still, even when we pray, even when we cry out, do so often we don't experience the kind of change and the transformation that we hope. It's because prayer is not a formula. It's not like this formula, like if I trust enough in God and I stop trying to trust myself, then God will do this thing. Like, it's kind of like, if this, then this will happen. Objectively, prayer is relational. God is personal. And there are all sorts of reasons why God does not always move in the ways that we want him to move, in the timing we want him to move, or in the purposes that we want him to move. There are all sorts of reasons why. And so the purpose here isn't to say, hey, if you just trusted in Jesus, you would see him do all the things you want him to do. You know that's not true. It's not your experience. It's not my experience. So why? I think sometimes we're asking God for things, but we're still putting our faith in ourselves. That's real. That's what this power, this passage is talking about. Sometimes the things we're asking God to do aren't aligned with his kingdom values and his kingdom purposes. We want him to help us build our kingdom. We want him to do things that we're excited about in this life, and those aren't always aligned with his broad purposes to bring restoration to the world. There are times where it's about timing. There are things that God does want to do to bring healing and restoration to the whole world, and what we're praying for is healing and restoration now, and God's answer isn't no, not never, but it's not now. Why might that be? It might be because there are things that God wants to do in you, to refine in you, to grow in you, to mature in you. It might be because God's desire is to show his grace 
and his sufficiency and his power at work in you in the midst of the storm, which shows his power in a whole different way. Like Paul, who pleaded again and again and again to Jesus, remove this thorn from my flesh. I have this thorn in the side, this ongoing ailment that is crippling me and I'm suffering. And he cried out again and again and again. To whom? To Jesus, to the right object. And what did Jesus say? He said, no, my grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in weakness. And it made Paul the kind of person that could boast even in his weakness in ways that has transformed my life. Paul's ability to boast in his suffering and his weakness and his limitations is like the, the thing that God is like most teaching me and helping me. And I'm like, man, I'm so, I'm so grateful for Paul's story of his ability to trust Jesus in painful situations, that he saw Jesus as sufficient. Because that gives me hope that I could find Jesus as sufficient. It gives you hope. It shows Jesus to be greater than the kind of remediation of our temporal troubles. Sometimes there's spiritual warfare at play, as there is in this passage. Sometimes God is working to magnify his, his name in ways that are so beyond our understanding. And so our call isn't to be a people that think, hey, if I just say the right prayer in the right way to the right object, then he must do that. As if we can put God in our service as if we can kind of manage God with a formula, as if we got the potion exactly right, it will be effective. And if, we, if it's not effective, we must have done something wrong. That's not always it. It's relational. So even these cries for God to heal and to move in these different ways aren't aimed at kind of this desire to see God do all the things we ever want him to do, but it is cultivating a deep trust in him. Whether he brings the transformation we long for or whether he doesn't, whether he teaches us to keep begging him again and again, there are times where I felt like he's called me, like, hey, I want you to stop asking me about that. Not frustrated, just not what I'm doing right now. Just not what I'm doing right now. I want to teach you to have joy right here in it. Right here in it. It's like, okay, then God, help me have joy right here in it. That's my new prayer. Help me have joy right here in it. And in the end, all of these things show us again and again that God's kingdom moves forward through the agency of his people as we act in faith in obedience, believing in his power. In fact, our own salvation is a declaration. I don't have the power to heal myself and reconcile myself to God. And in faith, we reach out to God, say, God, save me. And in grace, he awakens us to the reality that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. He washed us, he cleansed us, he forgave us. And through his power and through his resurrection, he reconciles us to the God of the universe and secures us in his love. And it's in that relationship that God is patient, he is kind, he is gracious, but he's also inviting us to grow as men and women in faith that depend on his power and not ours. Let's pray. And Jesus, would you help us even now to trust in you, to run to you with all the burdens we carry in our own souls, in our own families, in our own communities, the burdens we carry for this world. Help us to be people that do not rely on our own strength, our own wisdom, our own ingenuity, our own creativity, but we would rely in you and in your power. We pray that you would work beautiful things in us and through us for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media at Park Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at parkchurch.org. Peace and love.